Lord, we ask you to guide us in all truth and teach us your ways and uh, speak to us through this passage as we discuss tragedy um, and the end of King Saul's reign. And uh, Lord, we know that you're not afraid to, to speak the truth about tragedy. You're not afraid to speak the truth when times are good, Lord. But we know that your truth is what carries us through uh, each and every season, whether we have uh, good seasons or bad seasons, whether we're in a season of loss or a season of blessing. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would give us spiritual uh, discernment, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would give us the spirit of, of wisdom and revelation, that we would would see you uh, working in our lives personally through this text specifically. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as you recall, we've been talking about King Saul and King David, and the author's been uh, basically going back and forth where sometimes he's focusing on Saul's story, uh, then sometimes he's focusing on David's story. Well, the last couple chapters, he's been focusing on David's story. Remember, uh, basically from 1 Samuel chapter 27 uh, to 29, we have this buildup and David is getting ready to make the worst decision of his life. He's with the Philistines on their side, getting ready to attack his own people, the Israelites. Kind of got forced into this situation because of his deceit. He made a bad decision in 1 Samuel chapter 27 to go dwell in the land of the Philistines. And all of a sudden, bad decision after bad decision, decision he's in this place like i don't know how i got here so just before he's getting ready to attack his own people here comes god the sovereignty of god specifically through the enemy of god's people being the philistines he gets the philistines to redirect david how does he do that well the philistines basically go who are these hebrew guys that are supposed to be on our side getting ready to fight these other hebrews this doesn't make sense these people are probably spies they're going to turn on us in the middle of the battle well the lord used that to redirect david so he didn't make the worst decision of his life so we see then in first samuel chapter 30 david he's on his way back to ziklag that land that was given to him he's on his way back home and on his way back from afar, they see that their village has been raided. There's all this burnt fire and ash and all this stuff coming up. Well, they get there and apparently the Amalekites had raided the village. They took all their family members, the kids. They took everyone as slaves. So David has a turning point in this moment. He's brought to a place of brokenness. Remember, his buddies, his army of 600, these guys that were supposed to be faithful followers, they were ready to stone David. They're like, because of you, because we've been following you, now we lost our whole family. So David has nowhere else to turn but where? David turns to the Lord. And it says that he strengthens himself in the Lord. And he seeks the Lord in prayer and he asks God, hey, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to go get our family members? Like, who would ask that question? Right, of course, right? But God gives them the answer that he was looking for and says, yes, I want you to go get your family members from the Amalekites, but you're going to get your family members. And I promise you, as you pursue them, you're going to overtake them and you're going to get everything back that they took from you. So we see David, he's obedient, his men get back on board, they follow him, they go get the Amalekites and they get everything back. But not only did they get everything back that they lost, they got more. 
God blessed them with even more. They got to take all of the other things that the Amalekites uh, had stolen from other people. So David has this abundance of blessing. And what does he do with it? He gives it away. He blesses the people of Judah. He realized that God wasn't just blessing him so that he could have more. He was blessing him so that he could give more. Now, this was a very wise decision for David. He was doing it, I believe, out of sincerity. But this obviously built relationships between him and the people. Little does he know that he's going to be king again. And then I see shadows. I'm like, I hope that's not me. (laughs) Better you than me. So... David, he gets this tremendous amount of blessings. He blesses his people. Now the story's going to shift back to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 31. As we redirect our focus to the story of King Saul, we have to remember a prophecy that Samuel made to him back in 1 Samuel chapter 28, which we'll get into later. But remember, Samuel promised saw that he and his sons were going to die the next day in that battle against the Philistines. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this text in chapter 31. We're going to see the end of King Saul's reign. Which brings me to the title of this teaching. The end of a rebellious reign. The end of a rebellious reign. That word, rebellion, really marks, if you wanted to summarize, I know we've used the word hypocrite and other words to describe King Saul's reign, but it all really came down to him rebelling against God time and time again. That's why he's in the situation that he is. God had grace on him time and time again. God had the biggest opportunity for him to be a faithful king of Israel, blessed him abundantly, and none of that was good enough for King Saul. He just wouldn't be obedient to the Lord. Now, in this chapter, we're going to see the word flee mentioned three times, and we're going to see the word fall mentioned four times. See, the Israelites are going to flee because their king has fallen. And that's really what this chapter is all about. Saul, he's fallen. He's been fallen. He fell a long time ago. But now we're going to see that his fall is solidified in his death. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, if you would with me, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So we see the Philistines fighting against Israel. This is the battle that the author has been building up to since the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 28. This was the battle that David was getting ready to fight in on the Philistine side. This was the battle that Saul was getting ready to fight in when he sought Samuel to ask, hey, what's going to happen? What's going to come of us? What's going to come of me as a king? And Samuel gave him those terrifying words that he was going to die. And what we also see in this battle, if you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 4, it says, Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. So when you look at a map, 
we already see that the Philistines are basically invading Israeli territory. All right. So they're already in Israel. Okay. Israel hasn't like kept up their, uh, what would be the barrier. They haven't kept up the barrier. The Philistines are already inside of Israel. Mount Gilboa is in Israel. So they're already on the defensive. The Philistines are on the offensive. Now to top it off, the Philistines, it says in verse one, are slain the Israelites, and the Israelites are fleeing. The Israelite army is in full retreat back to their camp. They're absolutely getting demolished. Let's look back at the text. First Samuel chapter 31, verse 2. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. See what happens there? Saul died. His sons died. Just as God said. It's point number one. God says what he means. God says what he means. God said this was going to happen. And this is exactly what happened. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 19. The Lord speaking through Samuel. Even though Samuel's dead. <laughs> we see... Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter how much time passes. It doesn't matter how much doubt we have. Our doubt can't deter God's promises. If he says it's going to happen, it's absolutely going to happen. Why? If you would with me, it's Isaiah chapter 46. It's Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46. The longer Jude is alive, um, the less of a Bible I have. Uh, this thing keeps getting torn up each and every day. <laughs> he just comes after it. I'm looking at these pages. It's about time for a new one. I don't want to let it go. Isaiah 46, verse 10, it says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure." You hear that? God declares the beginning from the end. He declares the end from the beginning. Why? Because He knows all things. He knows exactly how things are going to play out. He knows how His plan is going to play out. Not just His plan for this world, but also His plan for our lives. So when God says something's going to happen... We can rest assured that that is absolutely going to happen. Now, sometimes God gives us a warning about something that could potentially happen. That doesn't necessarily have to happen. And God had given Saul several warnings back early on in his reign of things that he could have prevented. Remember, he gave him the opportunity to repent when he told him to slaughter all the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. That was an opportunity for Saul to repent from sacrifices, sacrificing the animals and playing the high priest role. It wasn't his role to play. So we see sometimes he says things, God, he says things that could possibly be, happen. And we basically determine whether it happens or not. What do I mean? 
Sometimes God warns us of things that could potentially happen. And he says, if you keep going down this road and doing these things, this is what's going to happen. If you change, you can change the outcome of what's about to happen. He gave Saul so many warnings, yet Saul wouldn't listen. See, sometimes God warns us of things. Sometimes he warns us about something that could potentially happen. If we continue in a certain behavior, if we continue uh, uh, with a certain habit or in a certain sin, maybe it's with a certain job or career path, maybe it's in a certain relationship in God time and time again. He tries to give us those warnings. Don't keep going down this path. It's time to turn because if you keep going down this road, there's going to be destruction. Nothing good waits at the end of this road. In Jeremiah chapter 6, something similar happens. See, Jeremiah had a message, message for the people. Jeremiah had an extremely difficult ministry. That's why he's referred to as the weeping prophet. God gave him so many powerful words, but the people wouldn't listen. And God, he basically gave Jeremiah uh, a charge and he said, hey, I want you to tell the people that they need to submit to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This is me disciplining my children. They're going to be under the authority of this pagan king. So they need to submit to this king. If they keep rebelling against them, something bad is going to happen. And look what it says in Jeremiah chapter six, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Jeremiah, who am I going to talk to? Uh, I talk to these people. They want nothing to do with it. They don't want anything to do with the Lord. The word of the Lord, they don't value that. Though you keep trying to warn them through me, they don't want to listen. They don't want to listen. They're hard of hearts. They're stiff-necked. They won't take heed. And you know what happens? Exactly what God tried to prevent from happening. He said, hey, if you just submit, this stuff doesn't have to happen. But guess what? If you don't submit, you're going to be taken captive. And I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. And I'm going to destroy the temple. Those things didn't have to happen. If they would have just submitted to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, but king after king of Israel kept, uh, or Judah specifically, kept rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar and fighting back and they wouldn't receive the discipline from the Lord. So it ended up costing them everything. See, God, he gives us warnings. And we have an opportunity to take heed to those warnings or to ignore them and close our ears and continue down the same path that we've been on. But if we choose that path, God is faithful to fulfill his word. And if he warns us of something in the future, we keep going down that path. We will face the consequences of those decisions. The question must be asked, what are we willing to lose by not taking heed to God's warnings? See, the people, they must have thought, no, nah, it's not going to happen. God won't really do that. All the other prophets are preaching peace. But they'd find out the hard way that God was serious. He was a man, a God of his word. See, God, 
again, back in 1 Samuel chapter 31, he's going to fulfill his word. All of Saul's sons are slain, almost all but one. We'll get into that in a second. In verse 2, see, Saul's sons suffered because of Saul's decisions. Judgment came upon Saul's sons because of what Saul did. Now we've got to clarify something. God doesn't punish us because of our father's sins. Okay, people sometimes think that because they misinterpret scripture. But, but God doesn't punish us because of our father's sins specifically. Let me show you. It's uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 20. It says, the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay, hey, you're not suffering because of your father's sins. He's not suffering because of your sins, specifically in the context of God bestowing punishment. Now, that doesn't mean that our father's sins don't affect us. Okay, our father's sins absolutely affect us. And that's what's happening here. Saul's sons are being affected by their father's sin. And Saul brought judgment when he brought judgment upon himself. He literally brought judgment upon his whole house our father's sins can absolutely affect us what our fathers do they can affect us for better or for worse now my parents are still married but if my dad decided to leave that would affect me my dad didn't spend any time in jail at least when i was alive but if he did that would affect me see our father's decisions absolutely can affect us but god's not punishing us because of what our fathers did Saul's sons are suffering absolutely because of the actions of King Saul. But we also see that Saul's sons being slain weren't just a fulfillment of prophecy from 1 Samuel chapter 28, but it was all part of God's plan. To what? To put David in the position that he could become the next king of Israel. Because if there's a son that's still alive, then he has the right to the throne. That was the whole idea behind kingship. Uh, When you had judges back in the book of Judges, and as we get into 1 Samuel, Samuel was the last judge. uh, It it didn't work like that. God anointed someone. He ordained someone. They were the leader. It didn't matter what your kid did. They didn't like take the lineage from you. You didn't pass the torch to them. He just anointed people and said, Hey, you're going to be the judge of Israel. You're going to be the leader of Israel. Once the kingship started, it was different. Your lineage was supposed to take control over the throne. So now Saul's sons have to be wiped out of the picture so that David can rule and reign. What we see here, though, is that there's one son left remaining. And he's in 2 Samuel. If you flip over a page, chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. It says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mananam. See, this Ishbosheth guy is the last son of King Saul. So this kind of puts a barrier up between uh, David and his throne. We're going to see. In chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, verse 12, 
that these guys that are basically trying to please David, they slay the last son of King Saul, thinking that uh, it's going to be pleasing in the eyes of David. Maybe they'll get a reward or something. And, and David doesn't like this. He ends up having the guys executed, okay? So God used the wicked. He uses the righteous. He uses them all to ultimately fulfill his plan. But part of this plan, he had to get Saul's sons out of the picture. Now, this is probably the most tragic part of this text. If you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 2, there's a significant name that's mentioned, the name of Jonathan. Jonathan. See, Jonathan, that man that we see back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, his soul was knitted together with David. They loved the Lord. They had this mutual relationship with each other that was really connected uh, to their mutual love for God. They had each other's back. Jonathan uh, was willing to lay down the kingdom for David. He was willing to give it over. You see that right off the bat in 1 Samuel chapter 18. But now Jonathan is dead. I personally do believe that Saul went to hell. Okay, I talked about that in 1 Samuel chapter 28. I do believe that personally. I don't believe Jonathan did. Why? Because we see evidence of a relationship with the Lord with Jonathan. He's always talking about the Lord when he talks to David. That's what brought them together. Again, their mutual love for God. We don't see any evidence of that with King Saul. And Jonathan was a different type of man than King Saul. Jonathan wasn't trying to hold on to his position like Saul was. Saul was out to kill David because his position was threatened. Jonathan was trying to protect David because he knew David should be the king. He knew he was the rightful king. He knew he was the king that was after God's own heart. See, Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose. Jonathan wasn't trying to hold on to something that wasn't his. He, he knew the, the kingdom of God's. He knew uh, the people of Israel, that kingdom, was God's to give and God's to take. He wasn't holding on to something. And I believe he absolutely is spending eternity with the Lord. We go on. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 3. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded uh, by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw, saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul is severely wounded by these arrows that the Philistines shot at him. And he asked the armor bearer, hey, take me out. I don't want to be taken by the Philistines. I know what they're going to do with me if they catch me alive. They're going to torture me to death. The Philistines would do some brutal, brutal things back in that day and age. So he asked the armor bearer to kill him, but the armor bearer won't. He has the fear of God in him. I'm not going to slay the, the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to do that. you got to figure out some other way to die. So we see Saul, he ends up falling on his own sword. Now, Saul didn't commit suicide in the traditional sense. Uh, in the way that we might think. It wasn't like Saul just decided to take his life because uh, the Lord had cut him off. Um, 
basically Saul was going to die no matter what. And he was trying to put himself out of his own misery. Okay, so technically he did kill himself, but uh, he was going to die anyway. So it just gets to one of those kind of gray areas when you discuss that specific topic. But it does say this, and this is what I really want to capitalize here on uh, is in verse five. It says he also fell on his sword and died with him. So the armor bearer died with Saul. It says Saul was dead, which leads me to believe, and we'll get into this next week in more detail. Don't want to confuse you. But in 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's this Amalekite that comes to David and says that he killed King Saul. He says that 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 he was the one that uh, was the one that took him out. King Saul was almost dead and he was leaning on his spear and the Amalekite took him out. I believe the Amalekite was lying. Okay, I believe he was lying for several reasons that we'll get into next week. One reason is that when we look at Second Samuel chapter four, verse ten. David tells us this, he's speaking of the story of the Amalekite, and he says, when someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So we see the motivation behind the Amalekite is a reward. Okay, he wants to get a reward for David, thinking that he gave him good news. I took out Saul, so now you can be the king. And David says, this guy doesn't know what he know who I am, because that's bad news to me that you slayed the Lord's anointed. But it also says in the text, specifically chapter uh, 31, verse 5 of 1 Samuel, that Saul was dead. If the text says Saul was dead, then I believe he was dead. Here's the biggest reason why I believe the Amalekite didn't kill King Saul. Because this is the author of the text, okay? Inspired by the scriptures, saying, or inspired by the Spirit, writing these scriptures, saying that King Saul is dead. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, all that's being quoted is the Amalekite story saying that he killed King Saul. So if the text says that Saul was dead, then I absolutely believe that Saul was dead. It's the difference between the Holy Spirit telling the story of what happened versus the Holy Spirit telling the story of what the Amalekites said. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. If it doesn't, we'll talk more about it next week. So Saul dies. First Samuel chapter 31, verse 6. <clears throat> so Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. So we see it wasn't just Saul and his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men died together on that same day. This is point number two. Others suffer for our rebellion. Others suffer for our rebellion. All these men suffered because of Saul's rebellion. This is truly a sad ending to a rebellious reign. We see the whole army of Israel, or at least it appears in the text, the army that was there, the men that were there, ended up getting slaughtered because of something that Saul did. Now this is true in reality. It's also true in history. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, speaking of the first and second Adam, that would be Adam, first man created, and Jesus. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So we see through Adam's sin, death came into the world. Okay, So all of us suffer some type of consequence from Adam's sin. Now we have to understand this. And many people uh, get the wrong theological understanding. We don't die because of Adam's sin. Okay, We die because of our own sin. That's why we die. We die because of our own sin. That's specifically why we die. When Adam sinned, he brought death, he brought suffering, he brought all these things in the world. But God doesn't take out the individual just because of what Adam did. He's not specifically holding Adam's sin against us personally. Okay, The wages of sin is death. He's speaking about our sin personally. Now, we know death comes because of Adam's original sin. But the spiritual death is what I'm referring to, and maybe that clarifies. The spiritual death doesn't come from Adam's sin. It comes from our own sin, okay? So when you have infants that die, all right, they don't go to hell because of Adam's sin, okay? They, they actually go to heaven. And we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, David's son dies. We'll see that later on. Um, David's son dies and he, and he basically says, uh, I know that I won't be with you here, but one day I'll see you again. I know I'm going to be with you in heaven, uh, which brings up the topic of, OK, so how old do you have to be before God holds you accountable to your sin? OK, so when does God actually uh, send someone to hell because of the sins that they committed if they don't accept Christ? The answer in short. I don't know, okay? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's this uh, phrase referred to as the age of accountability, okay? Where we actually know what we're doing, okay? It's not just like a a, a child and we know we made a mistake. Uh, There's some type of actual mental maturity um, that I believe the Lord says, okay, they're old enough to know at this point, okay, what is from me, what is not of me, what is righteous, what is wicked. I'm holding them to this now now at this age they continue to walk in sin there's uh, not grace as there would be for a child so speaking of spiritual death specifically god doesn't send uh people to hell because of adam's sin he sends people to hell because of their own sin now on the other side as we mentioned people do suffer for our rebellion people do suffer for the decisions that we make god's not punishing them specifically because of the decisions that we made necessarily but when we make bad decisions and we rebel against god it affects everyone now when you look at the story the reason that the israelites are getting wiped out it's not because the philistines have a greater army okay that's not why they might but that's not the reason we see god use jonathan to slay a bunch of philistines okay we see god use small numbers several times to slay the many to slay the mighty so we know it's not a number game the reason the israelites are getting demolished specifically is because saul rebelled against god time and time again this helps us understand the weight of spiritual leadership 
It's a heavy weight. It, it helps us understand the, the weight of any type of leadership, male or female. It's a, a, a weighty thing to be a parent, to be anyone that's over anyone ever. That's a very weighty thing. See, many people will fall and rise because of the decisions of their leader. That's exactly what we see happen with King Saul. Many people die. Many people fall because of the poor decisions that he made. And we got to remember, Saul didn't always think that he was making the worst decisions. He thought he was making the best decisions for his people. So that's scary. When he sacrificed the animals, he thought he was doing something good for the people. But it wasn't his position to do that. He was rebelling against God's word. When he instituted that fast, he thought he was doing something good for the people. But it wasn't of the Lord. And then the people start eating these animals alive. Saul's decision had a catastrophic effect on his men, and now his men perished. See, when God calls someone into any form of leadership, he takes that position seriously. James talks to us about teachers, basically that pastor-teacher role, specifically in James chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read it for you. James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. James says, we. I'm one of them, okay? I know the weight of this leadership teaching thing, guiding the flock thing. It's very weighty. It says they'll receive a stricter judgment. or In other words, God sets a higher standard for His leaders. He expects more from them because they have a greater impact and a greater influence on his flock, on his body, on his people. See, David would be a good shepherd, and we'll see that later on. But Saul wasn't a good shepherd. He led his people in rebellion. He led them into this battle that they weren't going to win. They were going to lose. And it was because Saul had rebelled against God. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 7. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those who were on the other side of the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So, Mount Gilboa is on the west side of the Jordan. Okay, you guys, this would be west. Okay, right? How would I do this? Okay, so Mount Gilboa is on the west side of the Jordan. Okay, pretend this is the Jordan. Okay, so here's where the battle is, right? I probably should have had a map. So the battle's over here. So it says there's people on the other side of the Jordan that saw the people fleeing from Mount Gilboa, and they fled too. So basically what's happening here is essentially the text is implying that the Philistines basically took out a big chunk of Israel and divided the north and the south. They like divided the country, specifically Galilee and up, uh, and then everything south of Mount Gilboa. So now, 
now they have uh, better means to just wipe Israel out. This is not looking good for Israel. It's not just the armies that were fighting uh, the Philistines at Mount Gilboa that fled. All these other people are fleeing from this part of Israel. So now the Philistines are literally in Israel in the northern part. They could take out the north first and then just make their way down south. They've literally divided the country. Israel is in not, not in good shape. The people are fleeing. The army is decimated. Their king has died. This seems to be another season of hopelessness. Let's see what happens. First Samuel chapter 31, verse 8. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons falling, fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off the head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Brutal, right? Imagine if they got a hold of Saul when he was still alive. Okay, we don't know what would have happened to him, but they cut off their heads. They put their bodies on this wall. This was truly a brutal act. The Philistines are essentially claiming victory. We're, we're victorious over Israel, but not only Israel. They know who Israel worships. Our God is greater than their God. Our God has taken out their God. Dagon was the main God that they worship. Dagon is greater than Yahweh. This doesn't just disgrace the name of Israel. It disgraces the name of Yahweh. But what appeared to be a tragedy for Israel would ultimately turn out to be a triumph. This is the third point. God turns tragedy into triumph. God turns tragedy into triumph. And you look at this text like, where's the triumph? Where's the victory? It's coming. See, this is all part of God's plan. God's going to use this all to put the right king in the right place. He had to bring this city, uh, probably, sorry, this nation to this place of destruction. He had to take out King Saul and his sons all so that he could fulfill his plan and put that good shepherd in place, being the person of David, so that he could lead his people in hope. This isn't the only time that God does this. God does this many times. See, sometimes what the enemy sees as a victory is actually his defeat. In Colossians chapter 2, we see this, speaking of Christ on the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he, being Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What the enemy thought was a victory. We took out the king of glory. That was actually the Lord's victory. It seemed like a tragedy. Remember all the disciples? Oh my gosh, we lost our king. The Marys all mourning. We've been defeated. But what appeared to be defeat was actually the Lord's way of bringing back victory. See, 
the times that we often feel the most defeated are the times that God is using to bring about the greatest victory. It's in that moment that we feel like we've been crushed, that we've been destroyed, that the enemy has just had his way with us. He can't put us in a lower situation. He's already kicked us while we're down. We have nowhere else to go. See, God uses this and he uses the attacks of the enemy for this specific purpose. In fact, he did it with the apostle Paul. I'll show you it's second Corinthians chapter 12 and second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, as he speaks of uh, basically all his accolades, meaning all the things that he suffered for Christ, he then says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. The Lord was allowing spiritual attack to go on in Paul's life. Now, none of us know exactly what this was, whether it was a physical thing or an emotional thing or a spiritual thing. The point is, the Lord was allowing spiritual warfare in Paul's life to keep him humble. It goes on in verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the Lord uses the attacks of the enemy to remind us. That his strength is made perfect in our weakness. That, that, that our strength is truly rooted in the Lord. When the enemy's beating us down, when he's kicking us when we're down, when it seems like the ultimate tragedy, when it seems like the ultimate defeat, that's really what gives the Lord the opportunity to make his strength known and be perfect in our weakness that our victory would truly be in Him and nothing that we can accomplish in our own flesh. See, Israel is in this state of brokenness, but this is the state that the Lord had to bring them to so He could ultimately bring about victory through the rule and reign of David. So again, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 31, they fastened His body, verse 10, to the wall of Bethshan. In this culture, uh, this was a form of humiliation that was worse than death itself. Okay, so we see Saul, he has a humiliating uh, reign followed by this humiliating death. This is the legacy that he's leaving behind. Such a tragic, such a sad legacy. And when we look at the death and the death of anyone, it, it always leads us to this place where we ask the question, what's the legacy that I'm leaving behind? What are people going to say about me when I leave this earth? Now, when we're taken up, it won't matter anymore. We can't make our legacy then. We can only make it now. The legacy that Saul would leave was sad. It, it truly was tragic. And it was all rooted in his rebellion. It goes on, 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines, heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned uh, them there. 
Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So we see these valiant men, they heard what happened to Saul and uh, his sons. And what they do is they travel from Jabesh Gilead to Beth Shan, which is about uh, 10 miles. And it said they did this by night. So they go by night, travel 10 miles to this place, then take dead bodies and carry them back to Jabesh. This this is serious work. Carrying a body, a limp body, is hard. Imagine doing it for 20 miles in the middle of the night. Like these guys truly were valiant men. But this also shows us something. In the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of despair, we just saw all the armies of Israel were wiped out. There are still valiant men left in Israel. See, the author, he's given us a little glimmer of hope. All the valiant men aren't gone. There's still hope to be had. And there's one valiant man specifically that we'll get into next chapter. Obviously, the man after God's own heart, David, the young boy that was anointed king early on. He's still around. See, God still has a promise to fulfill in David's life, and this promise couldn't be fulfilled while Saul was still in the way. God would use this tragedy as a triumph, as I mentioned, ultimately putting David in the position of power that he needed him to be in. See, the end of 1 Samuel is really the beginning of 2 Samuel. Oftentimes, for things to change, something has to die so something else can be reborn. And this is a message that the Lord teaches us. In John chapter 12, verse 24, John 12, 24, he says this, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. What's he saying there? A lot of times for us to experience life, we got to experience death. That's the pattern. It goes death, then life in the Lord's eyes. Not life, then death. But specifically for the kingdom of Israel, Saul's reign had to die so that David's reign could be birthed. Through David's reign, we'll see God bring light. He'll bring life. He'll bring hope. So what appears to be an absolute tragic death in tragic chapter, in tragic scene, where all hope is lost, is actually the beginning of something amazing, the beginning of something magnificent, one of the greatest seasons of the nation of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you turn tragedy to triumph, we thank you that, uh, God, you're so good. You can turn anything around. And Lord, it's, uh, it's hard to face some of the, the bad things. And we look at the reign of Saul and we know uh, it's mainly lessons that you're trying to teach us uh, as what not to do and, and how not to behave and how not to have a relationship with you and especially how not to lead uh, God, but we also know that you uh, use um, these things to teach us deep lessons. And as we see your son David uh, come on the scene to, to be this uh, righteous ruler that's still flawed, but a man after your own heart, God, I pray that we would be reminded that even in the most tragic seasons of our life, there is still hope. There's still a glimmer of hope 
You still had those valiant men. You still had that valiant man in David, Lord. And I pray uh, that if there's anyone here going through that season of, of tragedy, Lord, that we would see that glimmer of hope, whatever it is, God, that you'd get that message across. You'd speak to our hearts and our minds that we would recognize not all is lost. In Jesus' name, amen.